Welcome, everyone, to Fawcett's uh, Existential Hope podcast. Uh, really, really happy to have so many of you here uh, and very, very happy to be starting a new year. Um, uh, and I couldn't really imagine anyone better to do that with than uh, Anders. I think Anders is kind of the incarnation of Existential Hope, not only to us, but to many, many others. Um, and yeah, it's been really wonderful collaborating with you. I think, you know, since a while back now, maybe that's been four years of Five, even that the pandemic has definitely shifted uh, time, time perception somewhat. Uh, you've joined us at Vision Weekend in San Francisco. And uh, and I think, you know, since then, really have been, at least in our community, also in the Bay Area, even though you're in Oxford, have been holding up this kind of like existential hope, uh, you know, like limelight for much of the community here in a really wonderful way. Uh, there's a bunch of material from us uh, with you out there where we dig with you into the specifics of what you're working on, which really is a very, very broad a cluster of anything from neuroscience and neuroethics to generally grand futures in space opera, uh, like futures out in space to thoughts on AI. Uh, and then you now package all of that in the book, Grand Futures, which, uh, you've spoken about, uh, at various different podcasts, including, uh, and with us. And so if people want to dig more into that, uh, it's this kind of like grand masterpiece, uh, that is the book of all books. We've talked about that at various occasions. So I just point people to these links. They all exist. From Anders out there, you've really thought uh, about most topics that are pertaining to positive futures in a really wonderful way, uh, including, I think, as Beatrice uh, mentioned to me, uh, in more of the fun papers, such as Blueberry Earth, um, which uh, answers the question of what if the entire Earth was instantaneously replaced by an equal volume of closely packed but uncompressed blueberries. So you've also done some fun writing. Anyway, we're really happy to collaborate with you uh, this year, in particular, on a whole brain emulation workshop. Um, that uh, is doing a re-ramping of the whole brain emulation roadmap that you wrote a long, long time ago uh, in, 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 in current understanding of time um, and uh, be collaborating with you on a few other projects. So thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Um, maybe just to kick, kick you off with, um, I've kind of like riffed on a few things that you have been doing in your academic career, but um, if you can, in your own words, explain a bit, like what do you think you're working on and what got you started? Like you're the Andrew Sandberg uh, life story in three minutes that's going to be a ride wow. wow yeah well thank you for that uh, opening uh, Alison now my standard story is something like I grew up in Sweden in the 70s it was very staid very boring so I read all the science fiction at the local branch library realized I want to make these grandiose futures real let's read the science part and then I went to the, the next larger library and then the municipal library and then the university library and uh, basically, I ended up in Oxford eventually. That's, of course, one way of looking at it. I I was bored by the current reality and I wanted something interesting. And instead of turning that into escapism, it turned into maybe one can actually understand and make the future. During that path, of course, I both ran across a lot of people with similar ideas. Indeed, the Foresight Institute that people associated with that, like Eric Drexler, and I keep Hansel were really instrumental in making me realize that, whoa, there are people making careers out of this, writing papers, getting PhDs, starting companies, convincing governments about that these technologies matter, fighting the ethical battles in academia or newspapers. Hmm, I might want to have a part of that. Um, there is also this other story you can tell, and that is, of course, uh, now I'm 50 years old, half a century, and 
When I became 25, I had a kind of 25-year-old crisis for about 10 seconds. I wondered, what have I done with my life? And I concluded, I have spent the past 25 years learning stuff. At first, obvious things like walking and reading, and then a lot more studies. And mm, maybe I should dedicate the next 25 years to taking this knowledge and making use of it in interesting ways. And I did. Uh, so last summer, when I had my birthday party, I took 10 seconds to have my 50 years crisis. Kind of, okay, what have I been doing? Okay, I've got an established academic position. I'm somewhat well-known in some uh, circles. What am I going to do the next 25 years? And I realized that mm, so far I've been applying my knowledge, but usually within existing structures. Maybe it's time to shape a few new structures then, and actually make a few things, not just sending out information uh, as a response to receiving information, but changing the world a bit more. So that might be my current 25-year plan. We'll see what actually happens. Very cool. Yeah, I just saw, um, I think your thinking just brought out this tool for a quarterly life review. So like once a quarter, I think doing that once uh, a quarter century is also a really good idea. Um, and I've missed mine, my first one, but I, I'm going to get on, I'm going to get on the second one now. So thanks uh, for that. There's a kind of fractal structure you want to have with your life reviews. You won't kind of open every month with thinking through what am I going to do this month? Uh, I found that very useful because uh, actually checking my schedule, I realized that, oh, I said yes to these lectures and going to these conferences is very good for the practical planning. Uh, but you also want to have that review. Uh, occasionally, uh, actually having that moment thinking, am I the bad guy? I think that's a very important thing to have at fairly regular intervals. Uh, and then you How often do, do you ask yourself that question, if you're the bad guy? Uh, about once a month or so. Uh, and uh, you can, of course, do it about different things, both in the large. Am I actually barking up the wrong tree? Maybe my life choices and general ideology is a bad one. But there is also a lot of the, the more practical things. Am I treating um, friends and family in the right way? Um, or this particular project, am I actually helping the field? Or am I just adding yet another paper uh, to fill maybe my CV, but also messing up the scientific literature with some bladder? Um, so I think having this recursive reviewing is very important. You can't review everything all the time because you want to work and you want to live. But adding this reflection is useful. And of course, the more thorough reflections, they might take more effort. So it's actually a useful thing to do them more rarely. I even did one many years ago together with my husband-to-be where we tried to figure out why do we disagree about politics? And we had this big sheet of paper where we mapped out different assumptions and ideas. And we actually kind of figured out that, oh, here is a core assumption where we really differ. There is, of course, a lot of things about upbringing and friends and family and stuff like that. But the really core intellectual disagreement had to do are groups more than the, uh, the members? Is it good to be a part of a group regardless of what is good for the members? And I'm kind of an atomist. I think it's good to be part of a group because it's good for members, but the group itself has no extra value. My husband disagrees a bit. And from that follows a lot of different political choices, which is, of course, great for having these ongoing, long conversations about uh, where we agree and disagree and building up stuff. So it's not just wow, so you did solitary a, reviewing. You might want to do it with other people. So you did a full double crux with your partner to the dissecting politics. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is wonderful. I once had this um, pretty long eight-hour discussion with a friend of mine where we went down 
um, basically all the different threads that we had ever wanted to discuss about various different future topics. And whenever, you know, usually you always have become, you come to this kind of point where you have to decide, are you going to now go down one way or the other way? And we always mapped the other direction we could have gone. That was also interesting. And then we went back to that. And we only stopped when we had exhausted all of these uh, individual tweets. That was with Tyler Altman, who I think you also know. And it was a very long discussion. But uh, eventually, we had at least exhausted all these points, including doing double practice on a few of them. So um, anyway, um, I, I, I did want to just ask briefly, like, so how does your review process look like? So every 25 years, you do this, like, you know, uh, kind of like big, big review but then um, do you do like an annual review and then you actually do a monthly review or is that roughly how it goes or are there more reviews in it? Or? If if I had been one of those wonderful, well-organized people you find on the internet, I would, of course, have been lining it up. But I, I bet that there are many rationalists who are actually doing this in a proper manner. I'm doing it rather informally because I am an informal and somewhat sloppy person. So rather than uh, sitting down with a big, big piece of paper for my uh, 25 year review, I actually literally was walking around thinking about it while also trying to get more cake into the kitchen. Uh, but I knew beforehand that I was going to do it. And uh, I kind of recognized that, yep, at the start of the, the new year, after getting over the hangover from the party and uh, cleaning up the kitchen, that's actually a good time to sit down with a cup of coffee and plan ahead. You need to set up these habits so they fit with you. I think this is one of the interesting challenges I've noticed, that many of the ideas that are very good ideas on the road still need to be mapped onto actual habits, your actual personality, your actual psychology. And this is really tricky because there are some people who have psychologists that lend themselves to setting up habits in the right way. Others who drift in and out of habits. And some of us are very bad at actually keeping a strict organization uh, going. Others find it very easy. Learning that too and recognizing the strengths and weaknesses and the tricks you can use to get yourself to do the right thing is super valuable. And that's kind of part of what I hope every kid in the first 25 years learned the basics of so they can spend the next 25 years actually functioning a bit better. But there are some things that take much longer to discover. And there are also non-stationarity and personality traits. The big five personality traits slowly shift across the lifespan. Uh, one of the things I de I'm delighted about being middle-aged is that my conscientiousness uh, trait is go still steadily going up. I'm getting better at actually washing my dishes and cleaning up. I'm getting better at finishing papers, although my co-authors, uh, some of which are listening in right now, know I'm somewhat slow in responding uh, to all the emails. Okay, wonderful. So maybe then a good first habit for some of us would be getting into the habits of setting up habits. Uh, final question on this. What do you think your 75-year life review will unveil? Part of it is going to be, of course, okay, how did those last 25 years uh, go? Did this work out as I intended or that it, as it should, given what I know at the age of 75? And there is also something interesting about what dimension is it that it needs to be added? In some sense, learning stuff for the first quarter century, okay, that's a purely epistemic uh, dimension. Using the learned stuff to generate new knowledge is still fairly epistemic, although it involves a social dimension of getting the credibility and network, etc. Actually, implementing things is much more decision-making and also, of course, a fair bit of social stuff. Well, what else is there? 
Does this cover all the possible spaces of action? Obviously not. But I don't even know which dimensions yet are going to turn out to be the important ones. Uh, and that is an interesting thing because keeping an eye out for the things that are going to be relevant next time you do a review is useful. Actually noticing that, oh, I didn't think about that. So maybe I should work for my next monthly review and then writing it down on something. Uh, because human memory being what it is, and even post-it notes might be uh, somewhat problematic. Many of them fade before you can even make use of it, but you want to get it down into something more solid. So you can develop these habits. And it's also a bit of a skill. And the cool thing about skills is, of course, that habits you need to keep going, but skills can sit there quietly in the back of your mind. And when once your pattern detector notices that this is the right moment to apply that particular skill, it tends to come rather naturally to do it. It's kind of cool because like looking at your lightness way almost gives you a bit of notion of delayed gratification that it's actually useful at the beginning, like to actually spend some time and gain some skills and learn some knowledge that you can then afterwards apply in like, you know, in a multi multiplied way. Um, so I really uh, appreciate uh, the knowledge is not just knowledge about things out there. It's knowledge about yourself and even knowledge about how does delayed gratification feel? How happy am I if I delayed gratification? Uh, and it's useful to roughly know how rewarding it is because sometimes it's not worth delaying right? gratification. Some people uh, are naturally short-term. I think I should be more long-term, but I am not. But then understanding those things. And this is knowledge about values. And that, of course, gets to a really important thing. Eventually, hopefully, you learn not just about your values, but you also get uh, intelligence about setting your values, which is not what we normally call wisdom, actually deciding to do the right thing or motivating you to do the right thing. That takes time because there is a lot of information you need to get. You need to find the patterns. And uh, maybe I'm going to acquire wisdom over the next 25 years. We'll see. I'm mildly skeptical about it, but uh, we'll see. Very cool. Yeah, I just uh, discussed a lot in a recent conference this weekend on the reflective equilibrium from Rawls of like, you know, how you can basically uh, look at your intuitions um, to a bunch of situations, how you can then form principles based on them and how you can then revise your moral principles or your intuitions. And I think like that also takes time to just like build both cases up and so forth. So anyway, it's a really interesting, I think, long-term perspective from this. And then obviously, um, hopefully, I think eventually we get to the question of like, what will your 150 year review just yeah. like but we're not quite there yet but once it's time i will hit you up um perhaps... for a future podcast or whatever they have in the, that future era i will stage it on your google calendar um perhaps you could um just give a maybe like a birthday view and we already like talked about this a little bit but like if someone was now uh young uh and roughly interested in your field which is obviously like a conglomeration of different fields um you know what would, what could you give them that's, you know, still relevant as a kind of like useful overview? So, you know, what are kind of like roughly, what's the space of possibilities in like the field that you think of yourself as now operating within if someone new wanted to enter it now? So the field I'm operating in is some kind of vague philosophy, future studies, something, something. But what's actually going on is that I'm a generalist and I have a, a bunch of platforms, basically Certain sets of knowledge and skills and academic backgrounds act as platforms you can build other stuff on top of. So I would tell the young person that, look, you really should learn as much math as possible because it helps you get into a lot of the things that is math-oriented. 
And it also is kind of a useful way of learning how to manipulate formal systems of various kinds. So even if you're not going to go into anything totally mathic, just as a pure intelligence training, it's useful. And it's also helpful for learning abstraction, which you might also want for other platform fields like philosophy, economics, and maybe biology. And then you want to fill in a lot of uh, random knowledges. Essentially, just get acquainted with a lot of different stuff. Uh, because as a generalist, I think being a generalist is a very valuable thing. Uh, you want to be able to touch onto almost any topic or at least know that I could learn it if I really, really wanted to. I don't have any reason right now, but I could get into it uh, if I had the right reason. But then, of course, you also want to have a few in areas that you're actually quite good at. Because that's a nice way of getting a job to pay the rent. It's a very useful thing when you're a generalist and they're fumbling around to think that if this all fails, I can always do that, which is very good for your emotional stability. And sometimes a particular skill that you find very good at is just practical for leveraging stuff. I'm good at writing small pieces of software to test ideas, for example. I'm fairly decent at doing mathematical models of things. What kind of things? Well, that depends on the other interests. But whether it's a philosophy paper or a volcanology paper, I can whip up models relatively easy and critique them. So that's my kind of general advice, that you want to be a generalist, but that doesn't mean just reading totally randomly, although that's also a good thing to do. You want to learn various platforms. You want to learn a few powerful skills. And then you should just be open for combining that whenever you see an opportunity. Because the final part is a lot of life is actually literally bad, just luck. It's random luck. Uh, but you can act as a rece- being a receptor for kind of good opportunities coming your way and kind of gra- hold on to them. And you, over time, might also learn how to recognize pa- the pattern of that's a stupid thing to do. Don't do that. Usually that requires doing a few stupid things a few times. But the, once you learn that and learn to avoid doing the same mistake, Again, things get more effective, even though a lot of stuff is random. Who said this again? The uh, more I prepare, the luckier I get. Yeah, exactly. But roughly something like that. Um, and okay, very it's cool. not just individual. Yeah. I think it's also true, actually, for organizations and societies. Uh, you can set up things for an organization to be open for outside ideas and influence. You can make a society that's good at picking up interesting ideas and possibilities when they show up. A society that has decided that "Mm, we know what's right and we're not going to do it, or we're going to totally plan this ahead of time, is going to miss a lot of opportunities. They're going to have a hard time dealing with the occasional bouts of bad luck. Another kind of like pretty lame quote, but... um learning how to make opportunity, uh, especially in a time of crisis. Right? That's, the, that's the other big one of like, you know, and to, to take up opportunity when, um, to have very concrete plans of actions because when a crisis hits, they're more likely to, to flourish and to get adopted than, uh, than, than potentially in a, in a, in a different scenario, right? Uh, especially even if they're out there. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a piece of advice I got from my father. He was about as pessimistic as I'm optimistic. Uh, but he was also a manager at a big corporation and handling big projects. And he told me, Anders, always have a plan B because plan A will always fail. And then he added, and then you need a plan C because plan B is going to fail. 
And you need a plan D because plan C is going to fail. But once you get to plan F or somewhere around there, you don't have to make up more plans because by now you actually have a fair understanding of what things you could do. So when actually the shit hits the fan, you can improvise. But you have explored a bit about the domain of alternatives. You're not bound to a totally rigid plan. And I always felt that was actually pretty good advice. Uh, it's useful. As Eisenhower said, that plans always fail, but planning is essential. And I think this is an interesting aspect of uh, intelligence. When I tried to write my first uh, small AI programs back in the late 80s on my home computer, I had this problem that they were the classical observe, make up a plan, implement the plan architecture. And when that failed, I didn't know what to do. I realized that there was a word for plan repair. But again, it turns out that actually doing proper plan repair is hard. In many ways, that is the core of actually being an intelligent agent acting in this world. Modern forms of AI, of course, have much more interesting ways of doing plan repair, maybe not even planning in the same sense as the good old-fashioned AI I was reading up about in the 80s. But I think there's a lot of truth there. Yeah, I think, uh, especially as a conference planner for much, for much of my work, uh, I usually know the law like Murphy's law, right? Everything that can go wrong does go wrong, but I don't even think it captures it all. I think there should be an unknown unknowns part of that as well, to the extent that oftentimes you can only plan for the things that you know can go wrong, but then there's usually other things also that go wrong that you didn't even account for in addition to the things that you knew that would go wrong. And I think having something like that a bit more for civilization would be, uh, would be very nice. Uh, but yeah, I agree with uh, your father there on all accounts, <laughs> uh, and uh, and 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 I think it's uh, it's often you know on it's often evident on a small scale, uh, and then I think one can apply it to the larger scale of civilization too. And maybe just to walk people through, um, like roughly, like if you could give like a, a rough understanding of like to the extent that it's possible, how has the field that you work uh, and and kind of like breathe and really changed over, let's say, since you entered uh, since you entered the academic space. Are there things that were true back then that aren't true anymore? And are there kind of like predictions that you can make for someone entering the field now? Um, how they probably need to adapt based on what you've experienced in the past. You feel adapting um, that you know where they can position themselves perhaps a little bit better onto how to remain relevant over the next twenty five years of their own career. So the most obvious case is that I did my PhD on neural network models. I was a teaching assistant on courses, and I vividly remember myself sternly telling the students various things about overfitting and how to design a neural network in the right way, which are totally wrong today. They were kind of true back in 98, 99, when I was saying this in a solemn voice, but they stopped being true. And why neural networks actually work so much better now when we have more compute and more data is still an active area of investigation. Uh, Overparameterization is to some extent a mystery to this day. And it is fascinating because this was a surprise, not just to me, but to many people in the neural network field. We thought we knew what was going on. When my professor told me that, yeah, those deep neural networks, uh, they were interested in the 80s, but nothing came from them. Very cool results, but it's a dead end. That was true in 97. It stopped being true in the 2010s. Now, that tells us an interesting story. Just because a field has matured in some sense and understood something, 
doesn't mean that it has totally understood its domain. There might be important aspects that could change that actually revolutionize it. And in this case, it was not even an aspect of the field we did think could change it profoundly. The amount of data to teach and the amount of compute, that didn't seem to be the important thing. If somebody had asked me in the year 2000, so where is the next revolution in AI or neural network coming from? I would probably be talking about we need some new architecture or some insight in planning or how to set up modules or, or something, something. We didn't think that, no, we, you actually just need to have a ridiculously large number amount of data and then a mysterious process produce grokking phenomena and various other interesting opportunities and reignites the human. And taking a step back, uh, I've seen this happen occasionally in other domains. I, in the 90s, I started becoming active in the transhumanist movement. And we, of course, envisioned the remote future beyond the year 2000. And it's very amusing, of course, as an aging futurist to look at what did we get right and what did we get wrong. And one of the more obvious things is that in many cases, I think we're right about what was important. But many other important things did come up that we didn't notice would be important. So if you think that something is important, it's very likely true. But other things might turn out to be important too. Quantum computing might be a one thing that's obvious in retrospect, but definitely wasn't obvious uh, in the 90s until the results started coming out of the theory. We kind of recognized that space uh, would be awesome, but we also had this glum assumption that, yeah, that's going to be much further away, and then new space happened surprisingly fast. Same thing with artificial intelligence. The ordering of technologies and the speed they arrive is very hard to predict. Uh, so on one hand, we're making good progress on longevity and anti-aging, much better progress than uh, one could have hoped for, actually, if you talk to at least more mainstream people in the night. This still not fast enough, maybe, for us transhumanists. But this leads to this interesting lesson, but your ability to predict your own field is not necessarily that great, even if you're rather interested in the future of it. So you need to hedge against that also to a large degree. Similarly, you also need to see that your field might mutate. So in the last 20 years when I've been in academia, I moved from neural networks into philosophy. And I started out in ethics of human enhancement. I'm still interested. I still want to work more on it. But I realized that maybe the important stuff is slightly elsewhere. Because, well, AI, the whole brain emulation, some other technologies actually looks like to overtake some of the enhancement that we spent a lot of ink writing about. So there is this flexibility you want to have, and you want inside your own field to kind of take a look at where are the anomalies and all this stuff happening that seems to be shifting and nobody is talking about it. Because that, those shifts, they are usually important. Once they are big enough that everybody can notice them, of course, you should definitely do it. But if you can grab onto them beforehand and learn a bit about them, and write even a half good paper about it, Congratulations, at least from an academic standpoint, you, you made a gold, a find of gold here. But more importantly, you might be able to latch on and shape something that might become very powerful. Because that's the final lesson. When something emerges rapidly, it's very hard to predict where it's going. So you might actually not know how to push it very well. This is the calling ridge dilemma in the, the, the policy of technology. Uh, but you have a chance of getting that influence. And even though you might not know where to push it, at least by having been part of that, you can later on exert some influence once you have a better idea where you actually ought to be going. 
At that point, it's much harder to push the field because there is a lot more people involved, their vested interest, their standards being set. Um, so it might be much more work, but you have a chance of being part of the field. Yeah, I think uh, in a different podcast, maybe it was the FLI one, uh, you discussed also a little bit on the kind of like view on ethics, at least uh, the view on AI ethics, uh, at least from a like consumerist perspective. And uh, like that, you know, back in the days, people were really, really excited about pushing AI forward, uh, you know, to realize many of the, you know, transhumanist uh, dreams that I would also, uh, that I'm also dreaming about. Uh, and then people got a bit more worried about risks. Um, and, and, uh, and then now there's this whole, I think, like field of AI ethics that you think is sometimes, uh, perhaps more concerned with the more short-term bits in AI uh, ethics, like such as like, you know, different types of biases and so forth. And then there is now the field of alignment and they're not talking uh, all that much to each other. And so it's been a really interesting, I think, just the genealogy, I think, um, uh, of hearing you discuss a little bit about like how different beliefs about technology shifted in the field. Uh, it was really cool to see. I don't know if you want to correct me with anything that I said to you or there, no, I want to write that, my color on it. Yeah, I think that's an accurate uh, description. Uh, Back in the nineties, the transhumanist view was, okay, the more AI, the better. It's going to amplify human abilities. And this way we're going to be able to ask the AI to make us smarter and more powerful. And then we're going to reshape the world in an awesome way. Yay. And some people were saying, yeah, we need to have a technological singularity as soon as possible, given how crappy the world is and how much suffering and bad things are. So we really need to speed it up. And then came that important moment when we realized, wait a minute. If we get that much power and uh, it's also fairly autonomous as we're envisioning a lot of these AI systems to be, we better do it right. And uh, it might be harder than it looks. And people were, of course, immediately saying of a million, no, 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 it's totally obvious. You just put in the Asimov's uh, free laws of robotics. And others would point out, look, they're fictional. Not even Asimov felt very a good idea. And actually, here are a few good examples of how it goes horribly wrong. Don't worry, the sanguine people said, you can fix it by doing it like this. No, I can break it by doing that. And then that back and forth led to the early days of thinking about AI life. Although back then it was, of course, mostly known as friendly AI. And gradually it has developed. For example, one of the interesting things is that the role of an intelligence explosion, which started out being super essential to the whole idea and kind of fell to the wayside, Originally, the concept was, it's obvious that a smart machine is going to be able to make much smarter machine. And then you get this very rapid explosion of capability, which means that getting that first machine exactly right was super important. And I think there are some uh, strands of AI alignment that to this day think that is kind of true. Uh, but you can also recognize that many of the fundamental problems you find, the orthogonality thesis, for example, that intelligence and goals are kind of independent things and you can have something very intelligent with very stupid goals or the problem of convergence, convergent instrumental values. If a system tries to solve a problem, it's going to also have instrumental uses of power and uh, self-preservation. So even though that might not be its original goals, it might get that as a side effect, which can be quite dangerous. And the fundamental problem that human values are messy and maybe fragile, these things are somewhat independent on your assumptions about the singularity. Actually, you can kind of drop the singularity assumption because you still got plenty of problems to work with here. Now, the interesting thing about hanging out in fields for a long time is that you start recognizing some genealogy of ideas. 
I'm also getting annoyed that the kids of today don't know about the past conversations. Uh, so I get to be the grumpy old guy saying, yeah, we were talking about that back then. I did. Here are some dusty posts from a mailing list uh, that you never even heard about. Actually, it was before you were born where we made this point. Yeah, you're making the point much better and with better maths, but this is the original thing we did. Uh, you can point out why some peculiar things are around. And sometimes they are for good reasons, quite often just for random bad reasons. An enormous amount of the structures we find in our institutions and social network are just founder effects. Some people got together and got excited about an idea. And because of their peculiarities, you got a particular set of people latching onto that. And then later on, you might end up with a, a bunch of people assigned to a certain idea. It could have been totally different in, in nearby parallel worlds. It probably would be different. So there is a lot of contingency in how ideas spread, which is a bit sad because I kind of hope that truth should always win out in the end. In the marketplace of ideas, good ideas should always win. But over time, you realize, well, this is maybe true in some statistical overall sense, but quite often you need to work rather hard on this. And actually, a lot of it is just random chance. Sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're unlucky. Yeah, I guess that maps a bit on the concept of like value drift by uh, Robin Hanson as well. <laughs> and to the extent that, you know, like uh, values may not, you know, what we call as moral progress may also just be value drifting. And of course, uh, us being in it, we would experience it as, as moral progress to some extent. But um, I think the interesting thing that, is that you can have a combination of both. Um, so when you think about diffusion processes in physics, they basically what you have is a random drift where particles uh, diffuse away from each other. But you might also have some uh, drift that is non-random because you might be in a liquid that is moving or maybe it's magnetic particles and magnetic fields. So yes, we're diffusing around randomly, but we're also attracted towards the magnet. And the same thing might be true for many of our values. There might be, so to say, magnets for values. There are some values that are consistent and produce certain outcomes fairly reliably. I, I, and I do think they, in some sense, correspond to moral truths in some vague sense. Uh, I do think that open societies tend to uh, function better in solving problems than closed societies. I think letting people actually control their lives tend to make people happier than uh, having some outside force trying to optimize their lives for them and so on. And then you have a lot of randomness about, well, what uh, things do we try to fix? What are regarded as taboo to talk about? What is regarded as the most important thing to optimize your new organization for? A lot of that is random and might just depend on who was writing the wrong blog post or uh, thinking about a certain thing and telling other influential people at the right time. So the understanding this mixture of both random drift and this uh, targeted drift is valuable. Also, incidentally, this is, of course, a good way of trying to live your life. Yes, you're going to move around randomly, but if you try to bias your random walk in a good direction, you're going to end up quite far in that direction across your life. Yeah, and perhaps there's like a few kind of like side constraints, like maybe evolutionary game theory, or at least like for a specific like biologically uh, incorporated creatures. Uh, maybe they provide some side constraints, at least for for some bits. But uh, I think what I got really inter excited about are like a few uh, recent kind of like developments from OpenAI, for example, has a thing called debate, where different AIs are debating each other, and you have a human judge in the middle. Then you have obviously, I think Stuart Armstrong and Rebecca Gorman published this thing on like ChatGPT monitoring ChatGPT. Um, you know, for like monitoring for like 
uh, jailbreak prompts and like was actually be able to spot a few prompts that were like dangerous. And then you have like other work uh, also from on topic on constitutional AI where you have different AI systems holding each other in check. And I'm really excited about this because I think it could provide us with a better way of how humans become moral or at least us individually. Um, and to the extent that if you had an AI system that was like really like relatively well trained on your past search history and, uh, and, uh, and on a lot of data that you have available, um, you know, at first, obviously it's probably going to get, get a lot of things wrong, but it may also get some things more right because it has access to my data to evaluate different situations, like, and it, it get them more right by your own standards. And so I think this kind of like more recursive and iterative updating enabled and assisted by AIs, I think, you know, we at least have a few interesting things to learn from that. So I'm kind of excited how that's going to shape like our more updating as well uh, on the long run. Uh, and it's definitely going to be kind of like uh, an imperfect process, but I don't know if you have anything to say about like this kind of more human AI, maybe aided reflective equilibrium or whatever it may be, but um, this kind of like, yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah. Do you have so, any so predictions one, on how that will shape yeah. our values? Yeah. So one underlying thing in these examples is that truth might be a shelling point. Uh, so to explain to the listeners who don't know about shelling points, it's basically uh, if we decide to meet somewhere in Paris uh, on a, at noon on a given day, but don't say where, where should I actually go and wait? And the most likely answer is the Eiffel Tower if we're not uh, native to Paris. I think Parisians would probably have a different choice, but we have this knowledge that this is the most likely given what I think other people think. Now, it's interesting because truth is kind of a unique uh, case in some uh, domains, which means that it's a lateral shelling point. And similarly, there might be different forms of equilibria uh, that are uh, useful. Now, not all equilibria are good. There is quite a lot of equilibria in game theory and economics that are much worse than the best case. And it might be hard to get to the best case. But when programming AI systems that are supposed to be value aligned, actually getting to at least these stable points might be a useful uh, heuristic. Uh, and in many cases, they are much easier to analyze than the pathway you take getting there. Uh, so the real question is, can we now do the kind of uh, engineering to make it evolve towards these points? And can we also develop this theory about how to set the objective functions so the points where you end up in equilibrium tend to be good enough or actually really good. Okay, I could talk about this all day, but I'm going to hand over to Beatrice now uh, to dig into an entirely different set of topics. I'm sure they're related um, uh, at some end. Everything but, yeah, is related to everything else because we're in the same universe. That's true. Uh, that's true. Um, I think on, on that matter scale, uh, that's... Uh, um, that's a great segue then into a very related uh, discussion with Beatrice, and uh, we'll be taking you more onto the actual prompty parts of it. But this was a true delight. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, thank you for coming, Anders. It's uh, I, yeah, as Alison mentioned, I think you're a big inspiration for us, and especially for within this like existential hope program. So it seems like the perfect fit to have you on the this podcast because um, we're very excited about your book uh, whenever <laughs> it's going to come out. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and it's an eternal question. And the annoying part is, I think I'm mostly done with the important stuff, which unfortunately probably means I'm halfway through the entire project. Uh, because even if I now have finished all the relevant stuff, you're still going to have to, to check the equations and fix the typos and getting uh, the page layer. So it's taking its time. But I rather do this slowly and trying to get it uh, right than just rushing it out. 
even though I have a problem of ghosts of future books haunting me. I have these uh, like kind of ghost-like presences of books that I really want to write, really ought to write, kind of hovering around me on dark nights. Yeah. Woo, Anders, you really ought to start writing at least a disposition here for uh, my table of contents. Woo, Anders, wouldn't it be timely if you did this? Because at the rate you're going, uh, this technological phenomenon is going to become very relevant long before you finish writing this book. Yeah, it, it it sounds like at least it's good that you have a very long time frame on this Grand Futures book so that, you know, um, even if things go crazy in the next few years, that should still be relevant. Um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that this is a book that actually is readable even after the technological singularity. <laughs> exactly. That's great. That's a great goal to aim for. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of dive into, um, like within this existential hope project, we're trying to figure out what makes people excited about the future. And we're also trying to like figure out, um, the, we think it is important that people are excited about the future. Usually when I ask this question, I'm a little bit unsure of the answer. Like, would you describe yourself um, as optimistic about the future? Um, for you, I feel like, but maybe you're just optimistic about everything, but are you optimistic for the future? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm generally optimistic. So, of course, that I'm optimistic about anything in particular doesn't give you much information because I'm so heavily biased. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing that I'm spending a fair bit of time working on existential risk, really looking to very, very, very dark things. And that's, of course, where being hopeful is actually quite helpful because uh, that still allows me to sleep at night after having been thinking through various horrible stuff. Uh, but I think that Having hope about the future, hope doesn't necessarily involve much about probability. You can hope for something that's nearly impossible, but you can still hope for it. It's a psychological attitude. But I also think that the actual probabilities of us having a good future are decent. I, I would give us uh, something like an 88% chance of actually having a glorious future. Uh, others would say, wait a minute, you're kind of giving us 12% chance of doom and gloom? And saying that's very dark and very horrifying. But I would say, yeah, but we might be able to make that smaller. If we play our cards right, we might turn those 12% to 10%, to 5%, to 1%, and so on. There might be pathways here. And being an optimist is, of course, a very good way of driving yourself to do it. Both because the future is worth saving. It's actually a lot of good there that it would be a shame to miss out on. But we also have a good reason to say, yeah, maybe we can affect the future. And then, of course, you get into the interesting discourse. How do you go about affecting the future in a useful way? Because uh, there are some people like Robert Hansen that point out that our ability of actually figuring out what actions have long-term effect is very limited. Most things people do to affect the long-range future doesn't affect but there are certain things that do, like setting up standards, creating you know, schools of ideas, etc. There are certain patterns that tend to uh, get generated. So I think uh, that there are actually options. Of, you know, the most important thing, you can learn about this domain. There is things we can figure out from past histories, from simulation, from philosophical analysis about what works, what doesn't work, what areas are just random and unpredictable and maybe uninfluencible, and which areas which can influence. And there are other parts of the future, of course, we cannot influence because we kind of set in stone, like, or at least uh, they're beyond our capabilities right now. 
once you have a map, then you can start focusing on the stuff that uh, you can be effective about. Yeah, I think you when you talked to Alison also, you mentioned that you, you do believe that um, societies can be more or less set up to be like likely to have like success. Um, and so what areas or technologies do you think the most like the most important ones to hone in on um, for us to sort of uh, get to, a, you know, existential hope scenario for our society? So I think there is a profound question about the technologies we use for coordination. Uh, normally, we don't even think of them as technologies. We might call them politics or newspapers or uh, Kickstarter. But they're actually technologies about aggregating people's preferences and ideas and turning them into actions of various kinds. Now, these ones are important. And I think they're fairly under-researched. Robert, the wrong kind of people have been researching. No shade over the, the philosophy of politics people or the people actually doing foreign uh, affairs, etc. They have been, certainly been doing a lot of stuff, but they have not recognized that we're dealing with technologies, that you could actually take maybe an engineer's uh, or hacker's mindset and start thinking, could we make something much better? What if we bolted on some AI? What if we added some other technology? Indeed, we know historically that our ability to coordinate has been transformed by many technologies. Writing allowed the coordination of much larger states. Uh, the printing press allowed uh, not just uh, even larger states, but literacy. That was not really possible without printing presses. And suddenly you could also do various forms of parliamentary democracy that previously was impossible. Broadcasting, again, obviously important for mass culture, etc. The internet enables so much that we haven't had a chance to actually explore it very well. And that is, of course, the real problem. The time it would take to fully explore the state of possible uh, the institutions and primitives to use for coordination is so long that we don't have the time to wait. We need to actually be rather carefully inventing new stuff and trying to uh, pursue it. So I think there is a lot of work to be done here. Now, there are other technologies that are important for existential Getting kind of clean uh, energy that is very cheap is important. Why? It doesn't change the human condition super strongly, but it suddenly enables us uh, to do uh, to get out of a lot more material scarcity. Uh, you can uh, suddenly do recycling much better if you have a lot of energy. Similarly, of course, getting a lot of intelligence and uh, cheaply using automation, artificial intelligence, again, very, very powerful uh, on its own. Also, one of those interesting, dangerous, but, uh, but powerful technologies. And then I think uh, we have this interesting issue about technologies for modifying the human condition are probably the most profound ones. But of course, they're going to be much more debated. They're going to be a real problem on how to do them uh, in our current civilization. But uh, one reason I'm not doing so much right now on human enhancement is that I realize that if we could get the coordination technologies going better, that might actually help us much more. Uh, and I, I think uh, many of the moral conundrums, well, they can't be resolved other than having people try things. And other people say, no, this is going, not going to end well. And then it uh, produces various results. We evaluate them. We learn from that. Sometimes subcultures turn out to have great ideas. Sometimes it's just embarrassing. Sometimes it's very uh, bad. But quite often we can learn. And the big issue here, besides coordination, is our joint epistemic system. Uh, 
I think one can treat a civilization as a kind of being that is perceiving the outside and internal world, doing information processing about that, making decisions, although they're, of course, distributed across large numbers of individual and large number of groups. And these epistemic systems can be more or less good. If you have a fear of knowledge that says that you can't actually understand anything about the world, that culture is going to be maybe very humbled about the things it can't understand, but it's also not going to take that hubristic approach that maybe I can make a theory for gravity and that maybe I can make a theory of mechanics and, oh, I can actually build stuff, I can do things. If you look at the philosophical underpinnings of the successful theorists, quite often they start out as being extremely shoddy and extremely hubristic. Eventually, philosophers and the scientists come up with better models. But even taking that view that we can understand the world is a powerful assumption, and it turns out to be good. I have one little side project, which is about what about civilizational virtues? So individuals have dispositions we call virtues, which lead to good stuff. If you're a virtue ethicist, you would say that virtue itself is a good thing. If you're more consequentialist, you say, no, it's a disposition that makes you on average do good stuff. Uh, and we can leave that quarrel to the philosophers. There is an interesting discussion about, could there be group virtues? Could you say that that group of people, they're actually behaving well, while that group of people are having advice as a group? The members might be totally nice, but together they're making the wrong decisions and harming people. And I think there is a good case to be made that that makes sense. In that case, we could look at the top of the highest level and say, is our civilization virtuous? Um, this comes up with thinking about the existential risk, for example. Uh, do we have foresight to see that we're messing things up? And can we then control ourselves as an entire civilization to step away from the brink or avoid doing the stupid stuff? That might be appropriate to be called a civilizational virtue. Victor Hugo, the author, actually said that and, uh, peace is the virtue of civilization and war is its wise. Again, an example where we might say that, yeah, if you have a warlike civilization that wars on outside or inside threats, it kind of has a vice. There is something not working very well, even if every individual inside is totally good. So in this little side project, I'm thinking, could we make a good list of civilization virtues and can we figure out what mechanisms we need to get them? For example, being truth-seeking is an important aspect, I think, as a civilization of virtue. And right now we're seeking truth using philosophy and science and many tools, but we could be so much better. We have so much self-delusion on the individual and group and maybe on a civilizational level, so we might want to find ways of destabilizing that uh, self-delusion. Using technological or social or other means, and then let's see if we can make our civilization a bit more truth-seeking. Sorry, long rant here, but uh, I think it's an interesting topic. Yeah. It's a very interesting topic. Um, it's um, I, There is one question that I really want to make sure that I have time to ask you. So I'm going to ask it now, which is like, uh, if we try to get like specific about envisioning uh, a positive scenario of the future, uh, po positive and but plausible also. Um, this is um, something that, you know, in this podcast, we try to take a prompt of a new catastrophe. So like... Uh, an event where the expected value of the world is much higher it has happened. Um, and we tried to make like an AI-generated art piece of it. And so uh, it, if you think of both like a really cool art piece of the future, like a future scenario that you would like to see, and of just uh, 
what's your existential hope scenario? I'm I'm guessing you have several, but like uh, a favorite one. Yeah, Uh, I I think there are so many, but I quite often bring up my idea about the post-human coral reef. I want humanity to branch out in many different kinds of species, not just in uh, different shapes and colors and uh, life projects on an individual group level, but also actually exploring the space of post-human possibilities and finding weird and wonderful ways of existing. And ideally, of course, coexisting with each other. Not all forms of existence work well together. Not everybody can uh, be good neighbors to everybody else. So we need to find systems that help us uh, live in the same universe. But I want to see this coral reef of endless diversity continuing outwards into the cosmos, finding new things. The one thing about biology that I think is so amazing is that it's so creative. It finds crazy, wonderful, sometimes horrifying solutions to the problem of how can you make an organism that reproduces and functions. And it doesn't just produce endless number of uh, little black beetles. You get colorful beetles. You get non-beetles. You get insects. You get mammals. You get placosoans, for heaven's sake. Uh, And this produces an interesting uh, diversity that uh, if you replayed evolution, you would get something very different. There are some patterns that recur. But I think the space of mind is bigger than the space of genotypes. Because we can do evolution, of course, by planning ahead and thinking and uh, also creating new kinds of evolution. We can run things in computers. We can test out ideas before implementing them. We can make artificial intelligence. We might make an alien intelligence in a computer by running evolution. So I think my existential hope is that we can make diversity grow endlessly. There are critics here saying, wait a minute, you might get other bad things growing with this. Uh, what about suffering? What about inequality? And there are many interesting questions about side constraints and the things we want to push on. But the core part here is, I think uh, this coral reef uh, that's stretching out towards the ends of time is worth really working hard for. From a very small beginning, I think we can grow into something magnificent. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I feel like that's also a common critique against like pushing for technological development is that it would like make us more homogenous or something. Uh, and that's also one of the most common like kind of dystopian future scenarios. It's like a world where we're all kind of the same and we're dressed in white and silver or something. Um, and partially that is because it's easy to write. Uh, imagine a world where every individual were thinking in a radically different way, where we had a society that was set up to handle this. That would be very hard to write. And when you try to make a screenplay, people complain, wait a minute, you're going to have different costumes for every single actor. We can't afford that. Uh, Oh, computer graphics. No, no, no. We still can't afford that because now you need different models for every individual. This is just too much. So we tend to to get stories about the dangers of this uh, dystopia where everything is the same. But I think that's partially because it's so easy to describe. I think you can have the diversified dystopias too. They can be rather scary, but they're harder to describe. This is also why typically in many stories, people do very stupid and evil things because that's easy to describe. Having the tragedies where you have a lot of people with complicated uh, goals interfering in a complicated way, it's much more rare that you get that kind of story. Sometimes you do get them and I think that is great, but generally they're not common in in our culture. 
And I do think seeing that there are many options and that you don't have to be the same as everybody else is important. I mean, we need to not just cherish diversity because we care about individuals and want their life product to go. It's instrumentally useful, but I also think there might be, and this is where I think there might be a value that doesn't accrue to just the individuals. There might be a value in the universe itself having many different kinds of things. So this is where I actually do think there is a kind of group um, effect. Uh, a universe with more species, more forms of life, more experiences is a better universe than one that has just a few kinds, even if they are very good. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about that. It's going to be a hard one to uh, create, but that's why, yeah, let's do it. Yep. Um, well, that's uh, an artistic challenge. Uh, making pictures of simple things, that's not easy either, actually. I was uh, spending much of last night reading up about haiku poetry. I want to understand as, uh, as a small haiku about the snail going uh, slowly up Mount Fuji uh, because I wanted to use it in a book and I wanted to make sure I understood how it was framed, etc. And that is haiku poetry about something very simple. Writing poetry or making art about something very complex is a completely different kind of challenge. Maybe it's actually easier, but I doubt it. Yeah, maybe it'll have to be a, an abstract art piece. Um, but I, we're at the hour, but I really like uh, one last question that relates to what we just talked about is if you have any like recommendations on, well, it can be sci-fi, but it can be other things also, like anything to read or listen uh, or movies, anything. Uh, so I always bring up all of Stapledon Star Maker because I think that is kind of what is driving my vision about uh, why I want to make sure a grand future happens. It's an amazing novel. It's also very weird uh, by modern standards. It's a novel with no protagonist, really, except for intelligence in the universe. Uh, and that influenced me a lot. Another book that influenced me a lot was, of course, Hans Moravik's Mind Children, which is interesting because now it's fairly obsolete. At the same time, it's still way ahead of its time because he's thinking much more widely than many other people uh, do. And and finally, of course, the book that really set me on this course was uh, Barrow and Tipler's The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. My own book project is in many ways kind of a sequel or a, uh, at least a spiritual sequel. I want to take it to the next level. They wanted to have this discussion about humanity's place in the universe and how that might link to the anthropic principle. And in the final chapter, there's this famous uh, description of Tipler's Omega Point Fear before he went off the deep end about it. And I, I think that gave me religion as a kid. Uh, when I read it, I realized, oh, it could be that intelligent life can take control over the universe to the extent that we survive essentially forever and learn everything there is to learn and kind of get to the most complex state possible. That sent chills down my spine. It still does. I don't think that particular cosmological theory is the correct one for our universe, but it's a goal to strive for or something approximating it. I think one should set one's ambitions very, very high because the universe is worth it. Well, we should set the ambitions for civilization very high then. Um, what well, I feel like, yeah, we, I feel like we have to have you on again. I think, uh, you're going to be the first guest to come on twice. Um, <laughs> because I don't think we've, uh, exhausted the topics. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for joining. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a great, great art piece. And thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and see you in the future.